I think my sweet bride may be on to me this morning because today was her birthday, is her birthday and I was going to sing and she must have known. So you'll just have to tell her happy birthday whenever you see her and maybe sing then. I don't know. Yeah, no, you don't. No, you don't. Well, this morning we uh, come to really a, a transition in our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians as we begin uh, chapter 4. Uh, up to this point, he's uh, done a great work to describe all the things that, that God has done. How he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. How he's lavished his grace upon us. How we've been chosen by the Father, saved by the Son, sealed in the spirit and even while we were yet sinners we were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins paul's gone on to describe uh, the work of christ on the cross and how it created a new humanity uh, what we would call the church he broke down that dividing wall that separated us in our relationship with God and with one another so that now there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free or male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in us, shaping us to become the people he created us to be. We are strengthened by His Spirit, grounded in His love, filled to all the fullness of God so that we as His church might display the manifold wisdom of God. So that we as His church might actually become the dwelling place of God. Isn't that incredible? And I've just kind of skipped a rock across the top of the truths that we've looked at in chapter 3. I mean, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all that Paul has revealed to us. But now in chapter 4, he begins with a very important word, therefore. Therefore, based on all that God has done, what should be our right response? Based on what God has done, how should we now live? And then in chapter 4, he begins to answer that question. In fact, he gives us more practical application of what it means to live out the Christian life than any other New Testament book from this point forward. It's just filled with practical ways that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So as we look at that together this morning, I want us to consider what that looks like, not for just who we are individually, in our personal walk with Christ, but Paul's going to speak very clearly about how we are to function as his body, in our relationship with one another. And I think it's important to understand that those two are inseparable. That in fact, you cannot be spiritually mature and live outside the context of growing in your faith within the body of Christ. The two are deeply connected to one another. It's what Doug said last week, right? Discipleship is following Christ and sharing that with one another. Discipleship is based on relationships. 
God designed us to grow together, to take what we know and to apply it to how we live. And as we begin in chapter 4, he's going to walk us through what that looks like. So this is going to be good stuff. Now, before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, so grateful for the good works that you prepare beforehand so that we may walk in them. So grateful for how you orchestrated in, in ways that we didn't plan. We can't take credit for this, but to see how you spoke through Doug last weekend and then how unbeknownst to us, you prepared in Philip Goff's heart things that would be a reflection of what Doug spoke on that Sunday. And then we'll walk right into a passage that is just the same. It's not an accident. This is the good work that you prepared beforehand. So, Lord, we don't want to miss this. We want to have eyes to see and ears to hear. So help us to be led by your spirit, to hear your voice speaking to our hearts in such a way that it actually changes, transforms our life and the way we live. That's our request. And we make it to him who makes that possible, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And let's look at this together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Therefore, based on what God has done, I entreat you. That word entreat is just pregnant with emotion. Some of your translations may say, beseech you or implore you. The idea here is that, that Paul is urging the Ephesians. He's encouraging them with, with all that he has within them to, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. He, he says something similar in, the, in his letter to the Philippians when he was encouraging them in a similar way. And he says, he says I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. In that context, it kind of gives you this imagery of someone running a race, someone striving for the finish line. Uh, this year, Graham ran track again, and so I, had a, I have an image of what that looks like in my mind. There are times when he ran the 300 hurdles, and when they would start off, the wind would be at their back. They'd be pushing them, and they had the, the assistance of the wind as they make it over the, made it over the hurdles, but when they made the turn, <laughs> that wind now became their enemy. It hit them straight in the face. They had to, to dig deep. They had to push hard. They had to press on. And Paul is taking that imagery and he's applying it to our spiritual life. And he's saying, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The, the idea here is that we want to make sure our effort matches our reward. You see, if I'm running a race that doesn't matter, I'm not running hard. In fact, I might start jogging and eventually walk across the finish line if I finish it all because it doesn't matter. But if I'm running for the ultimate prize, if there's something on the line, <laughs> I'm going to give it all I got so that when I hit the finish line, I am running hard. And Paul is saying, heaven is the ultimate prize. 
hit the tape running. Make sure that you walk in a manner worthy of a calling. Make sure that you run in a manner worthy of that reward. And there's something that's at stake here. There's something that's really important that that should give us that motivation for that kind of diligence. And he tells us in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that he did not say, work hard to create unity. Work hard to to build teams and and to, to, to be creative. He says, no, be diligent to protect the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Be diligent to protect what Christ has already accomplished. Unity is a gift, a gift from God because of what Christ accomplished. We read that when he said that Jesus is our peace. He broke down the dividing wall so that that relationship between us and God and us with one another can be established. It's a gift of his grace. Protect that unity. Our goal is to live together in a way that protects what Christ accomplished on our behalf. That's what's at stake. And so in verse 2, he kind of gives some, some character qualities of what it would look like to protect that unity. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. There's a lot of adjectives listed there, isn't there? And what's interesting, he begins with humility and gentleness, which would have been the exact opposite of what would have been valued within that culture. Humility and gentleness were signs of weakness. They were attributes of a slave. You see, the successful were the powerful, the self-sufficient, those who could stand on their own. Not all that much different than what we see in our world today, right? Paul says, no, it actually takes more strength to lay down your rights than to demand them. It actually takes more strength to lay down your rights than to demand them. Humility and gentleness is strength under control. It's love holding the reins on our zeal. It's the attitude we see in Christ. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because I am humble and gentle of heart. We protect unity through Christ-like humility. And if humility and gentleness is love holding the reins, then patience and forbearance is love enduring. It's a willingness to tolerate our differences. To give grace towards our imperfections. To be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger. And all these qualities are grounded in love. Because love in its essence is seeking the highest good of another. It's considering the needs of someone else as more important than my own. That's what it means to protect unity in the bond of peace. 
And that's what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Paul goes on to, to kind of describe a model that has been given to us by which we are to follow. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is our model. He reveals the unity we are called to display. Now, I want you to hear this and think about it because this is a remarkable truth. The fellowship of believers should reflect the fellowship of the Trinity. God is our model. And the unity that we possess that has been gifted to us through that sacrifice made by Christ is a unity that reflects the Trinity, the fellowship of the God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important. Our unity is God's reputation at stake. And Paul begins by walking us through this. He talks about the Spirit, the, the presence of God who dwells among His people, the body of Christ. And as members of His body, we cling to, to one hope, which means this. We don't have to compete with each other because we share the same reward. You see, that's good news. We don't have to play the comparison game. Because when we get to heaven, we share in the same reward. And I'm going to make a promise to you, and you hold on to this promise. And when we get to heaven together, if I'm wrong, come find me, and I'll apologize. Okay? But listen to this promise. When we get to heaven, there's not a single one of us who are going to look at each other and go, man, I kind of got the short end of the stick on this one. Not a single one of us is going to say, gosh, I wish I would have worked a little harder to get a bigger piece of this pie. No, here's what's going to happen. Every single one of us are going to look at what God has done and say, this is so much more than I deserve. Every single one of us. So we don't have to compete. We share in the same reward. Paul says, be led by the Spirit in a common direction towards a shared reward. And we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It says, because of our faith in one Lord, that's Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. He rules supreme in our life. We all live in submission to him. And then he talks about baptism, and that's important because that's our identity with who Christ is and what he accomplished. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we celebrated baptism, but my favorite verse to go to is Romans 6, 4. Let me just read it to you. It says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism tells a story of what we believe to be true. That what Christ accomplished for us was made evident for us to live in a way that he made possible. What is true for Jesus has been made true for us. 
unity is found when we are led by one spirit, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. One spirit, one Lord, and then he says, one God and Father of all. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago, the, the Father from whom every family on earth derives its name. He reigns supreme over all his creation. He works all things in accordance with his good and perfect will. The fellowship of the Trinity is a model for the fellowship of believers. How we live should be a reflection of who God is. That's important. And that can only happen not when we get creative to try to do something that we think it should look like, but when we follow his design. And thankfully, he's given us a roadmap. His word guides us and directs us in how to, to live out that reality. And so he begins to explain it in the next verses. And before we go there, let me say this. These verses can be a little bit confusing. In fact, Philip Goff, uh, who spoke uh, at our men's retreat this weekend, says, I'm interested to see how you're going to handle these verses and my response to him was, well, I hope this is not real disappointing because I'm a very simple-minded man, and I don't think it's very complicated, at least from my simple mind. So you're blessed to have a simple-minded preacher, all right? Um, but let's look at this together and see if uh, we can't make sense of this. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself. Also, he who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, here's the key. The main point, and we don't want to lose this, the main point is verse 7. Jesus distributes gifts of grace to all believers without exception. Don't miss it. That's the main point, okay? The verses that follow are really Paul's little side note, his little uh, um, rabbit trail in a sense to help justify why Christ has the authority to do such a thing. What has he done to, to be able to distribute gifts of grace to his church? And he gives a defense of how Jesus has this authority by turning to Scripture. The, the Bible is the basis for his argument, and he quotes Psalm 68, 18. Now, we won't go through this psalm in detail, but I want you to know, and suffice it to say, that, that it is a psalm of victory. Okay, Psalm 68 is a, a psalm of victory celebrating a victorious warrior. So Paul is using this psalm of victory to point to Christ's victory as the basis of his authority. And then in verses 9 and 10, he explains how that victory took place. And I believe he's speaking specifically to the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus. See, before Jesus ascended and accomplished that victory, he descended. He came from heaven. To earth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he came to set captives free, to, to seek and save that which was lost. And that mission was accomplished on the cross. Jesus was crucified. He, he died and was buried into the depths of the earth. And on the third day, 
He ascended. He rose again. He was victorious over sin and death. And ultimately ascended into heaven. And as verse uh, 21 and chapter 1 says, I'll just read it to you. It says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, the point that, that Paul is making here is that the victory of Jesus gives him the right to give gifts to the church which he purchased with his blood. That's the point. And so beginning in verse 11, he starts to talk about what some of those gifts are. Look at what he says in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And hopefully this sounds familiar because we read another verse in chapter 2 that said something very similar. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's kind of taking that same idea, and then in chapter 4, he adds evangelists, pastors, teachers. But again, keep in mind, all of these are gifts that are given by Christ to protect the unity of the church. As we've already learned, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, where Jesus is the cornerstone. Without their testimony of who Christ is and what he did, they have nothing to stand on. Evangelists are those who continue to speak and proclaim that message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. And pastors and teachers are those who come alongside those who believe to, to help them learn and grow and, and strengthen them in their faith. And these are gifts. But what Paul is describing here are gifts that Jesus gives, not offices. There's a very important distinction here, and I think it's necessary to know why. See, all of us have come to faith in Christ at some point or another because someone told us about Jesus, right? <laughs> Might have been their parents, could have been a teacher, coach, friend. Whoever it was, they were evangelists because they spoke about and proclaimed the message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. And then as we believe, there are those who've come alongside us to, to help us grow and strengthen our faith, to teach us. And guide us. Could be parents, could be coaches, could be friends. Maybe it's an ABF. Maybe it's something you hear on Sunday morning. Maybe it's your small group Bible study. The point is that there are all kinds of people within this body, and as Philip demonstrated this weekend, from this body who teach and guide. These are gifts, and they are not reserved to a select few. They are not reserved to pastoral staff. See, from the biblical perspective, there's no distinction between clergy and member. We are all ministers of Jesus Christ. And we all have something to offer. Every single one of us. 
And that's really, I think, what Paul's point is. He's trying to make the point that we all have something to offer. Look at how he continues in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, and let's be clear here who he's speaking to, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The gifts that Jesus gives equip all the saints for the work of ministry so that we all attain the unity of faith, so that we all grow in the knowledge of Christ. No exceptions. Every single minister a member of the body of Christ is a minister for Jesus Christ. We are all learning and growing. We all have something to offer. No one's arrived. We're all in process. That's important because I believe it keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus and not on people. You don't have to look to me to be the teacher. I'm one of many. And many of those out there are more gifted than the ones standing up here. We don't have to depend on people. We can fix our eyes on Jesus who gives gifts and equips his church so that we are all prepared for the work of ministry. So that we all attain the unity of the faith. So that we all grow in the knowledge of who Christ is. See, this is important because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ alone. No one person can ever display all of the qualities that we see in Christ. But God has designed the church so that collectively we can. The church of Jesus Christ is to be filled to all the fullness of him. Our knowledge comes through our relationships with one another. And we all have something to offer. In case you're not convinced, let's continue with what he says in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building of, up of itself in love. See, not only does God design the church to equip us, but he also designs the church to protect us. And Paul contrasts that maturity that's gained through life within the fellowship of the body to the childish immaturity of living outside of that design. A child is someone who's inexperienced. They're naive. Remember that video I showed not too long ago, America's Funniest Videos, of the little girl and the dad who was eating the plastic caterpillar? Remember how enthralling that was as he ate the caterpillar and then the expression on her face was priceless, right? <gasps> she just couldn't believe. And then when he regurgitated the <laughs> The caterpillar and it looked exactly the same. <gasps> See, children are easily deceived. <laughs> They're naive, gullible. And in our selfish independence from God's design, the very same thing 
is true for us. We all become, as Paul describes, like a boat on the waves or like a, a leaf in the wind. The point is we're moved by the influence of things that are going on around us. We're unstable. We're naive. We're gullible. And Paul identifies that influence that's around us as the trickery of men or deceitful scheming. It's an influence that is trying to counter the effects of God's design. And so instead of protecting unity, this influence creates division. Instead of bringing clarity, this influence creates confusion. Instead of building faith, it causes us to doubt God's intention, to, to question his motives. Now, think about this. <laughs> Who would do something like that? It's our enemy. It's the influence of Satan at work in the world. And hear me clearly, at any given moment, one of these influences is at work in your life and shaping your decisions. No neutral ground. Either the Spirit of God is equipping, encouraging, and uniting, or it's the Spirit of the world who is confusing, discouraging, and dividing. At any given moment, one of those two influences is moving your life. So God designed the church for our protection. He, he gifted us with relationships so that we could grow and stand strong together. And thankfully, no one person has the responsibility to, uh, for everybody's spiritual growth and well-being. No one person bears that responsibility. We all have something to offer. Christ is the head. Without the head, the body does not function. Christ is the head. And as the head, Jesus coordinates all the individual parts, how they work and how they function together, what they accomplish. My favorite place to, to think through this is in 1 Corinthians 12. We're not going to turn there. I'm going to give you some key verses and how it helps me as I think through this. In verse 18, it says, God places the members of the body just as he desires. In other words, he decides what part we are, the function that we have. The purpose, the outcome. And then in verse 7, he says, God equips each of us with spiritual gifts for the common good. That last part's important because whatever role we have, whatever part we play, for the good of someone else. Spiritual gifts are not for our own self-promotion. They're not to make us look good so that we can impress people. If we're gifted in some way by God, it's for someone else. And that's why I've said before, if you want to discover your gift, then start serving. Because ultimately, that's where that gift is going to be used, for the good of others. And then in verse 11, he says, God distributes the gifts in accordance with his good and perfect will. There's purpose in his design. There's intentional outcomes intended. When we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that purpose is fulfilled. How we live should be a reflection of who God is so that collectively we display the manifold wisdom of God. As I mentioned in my prayer this morning, 
some of what Philip walked us through this weekend was along these very same themes, which is what Doug spoke to the weekend prior. <laughs> Discipleship is based on relationships. And like I said in the beginning, you cannot grow spiritually mature outside of the context of community. Now, we need to be honest and confront the reality that this is not a message that is preached in our world today. We live in a me-first society of individuals. That's the facts, okay? And so we're swimming upstream if we're going to communicate something different than that. As we've discussed before, uh, the part we play is not just what we do individually, but how we live corporately. And the message of the world says this. It says, you are a product of your own decisions. Who you become is strictly a result of the choices that you make individually. And although there's some truth to that, I think it's missing the target altogether. And here's why. Let me ask you this. Did you choose your family? Did you choose what country you would grow up in? Did you choose what neighborhood you would grow up in as a kid and the school that you would go to and the friends that you would have? No. But did those things dramatically shape the person you are today? Absolutely they did. I'll tell you and be quite honest with you that I'm still dealing with things in my life today at 48 years old that are a result of unhealthy relationships I had when I was in elementary school and junior high because of the friends that were in my neighborhood. I had a friend in college. Great. Loved this guy. He loved the Lord and, and, and was a, a, a part of Young Life. We did Young Life together. And to this day, he cannot embrace the idea of a loving Heavenly Father because of the abuse he received from his dad when he was a kid. We're not just the product of our choices. We are deeply influenced by our relationships. And once you become a Christian, that truth does not change. In fact, I think it becomes of even greater importance. Because God designed the church to transform our lives. We are sanctified through the relationships that we have within the body of Christ. And what God does in your life is intended to impact those around you. The gifts that he gives you are intended for the good of someone else. Philip reminded us this weekend that God has invited us to carry out a life-changing, eternally significant mission. And we have a privilege to be a part of that. But that mission is carried out through relationships. Life on life. Faith is not a private affair. It is a corporate reality. And if you're living outside of community, you cannot be all that God has called you to be because he created you community so practically let me give you some encouragement if you're new to Melanie Park and you're just getting to know people we're glad you're here and we hope you feel safe and welcome 
And, and this is a great place to, to enter into a fellowship of anybody. Okay? But as you continue to be a part of this church family, there's an entrance ramp. Okay? And, and that entrance ramp allows you to, to get into a little closer group of people where you get to know them beyond just the, hey, how are you on Sunday morning as you come in here and then leave. Okay? And that's our ABFs, our Adult Bible Fellowships. We've got several of them. As you walk in that door over there, there's one on your right, one on your left, there's one in here. Carrie does one downstairs with the uh, young couples. Uh, there's a women's class. There's all kinds of things. And that's a great opportunity to begin to, to meet people and interact with folks beyond what you can in the context of a Sunday morning worship service. So that's your entrance ramp. I encourage you to take it. As you've been here longer, I would encourage you to find out more about what it means to get involved in a small group. Because these are people that are meeting on a regular basis. They're spending time in God's Word, and they're living life together. We had a great time there a couple of weekends ago when our small group got together with all our kids. We had a meal with each other. We roasted marshmallows, and we talked about with our kids the things that we were learning and the study that we're doing about growing stronger in our marriages. We want them to see that marriage is never something that you just kind of figure it out and then it's easy from there. You work on it because that relationship's important. And we want our kids to hear that, to see that, and, and, and to actually be comforted by that. Because this is important. So we encourage you to be a part of that. But, but the point to all this is that, that God has designed our church and, and, and the body of Christ to function in a certain way. And it's based on relationships with one, one another. The church displays the manifold wisdom of God, and no one person can do that. But God has designed the church so that collectively we can. His reputation is at stake. And we want to make sure we are faithful to what he has gifted us when he gave us the unity that was accomplished by the cross so that we can live in fellowship with him and with one another. How we live should be a reflection of who God is. Would you agree that's important? So, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Put your trust in him and believe that his design will in fact accomplish all that he intends. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful, even as I spent time this weekend at the men's retreat, to walk into that room to see those men, and as I told them yesterday, to feel the, the ease of walking into that time, knowing that these relationships were ones that didn't have to be fabricated or created, but we could just enjoy the blessing of what God has done, to love those men and to be loved by them. Father, we want to be a church that is faithful to live out of what you've made possible through your work on the cross. That we would protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. A gift given to us because of the work you accomplished. We want to be faithful to, to use gifts that you've provided in a way that builds up and strengthens one another. And we believe and agree together that every single person within the body of Christ has something a value to offer that combined together collectively displays the manifold wisdom of God so that we project an image of who you are 
to the world around us, and we are protected from that same world who intends to divide and deceive and distract us from what you ultimately want to accomplish. May we fight. May we battle for what you've made possible. Father, thank you for the privilege of our time together, and I'm grateful for this body of believers, for the love that I have for them and I experience from them. It is a gift. We pray this in your name, who made that gift possible. Amen. Have a great day.